So I'd go like this and every now and then I catch myself doing something that my father does and I'm like, fuck, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> well, why, why not? Well, I don't know because I feel like I, I hate the idea that genes are destiny. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and also, as I said, when my father was really doing this, he was, um, right. You know, like demented. <laughs> so it was, it was a substitute for speech. Right, right. This, uh, there was a period, when was this? Like uh, a little less than a year ago, I guess like a year to a half a year ago, where this was kind of a reoccurring feeling of mine. Uh, most, most strikingly, like a, a particular instance that I remember that uh, when it struck me was when I was in that remote village. So last summer I spent uh, half of it in a remote Russian village, nothing around. And uh, it was just me and my girlfriend and our dog. And um, she has this plot of land there with a tiny little house. And this was the first time in my life when I started thinking that this is a possibility that you can buy land and you can build something there. And I remember standing, I couldn't sleep and at 4 a.m. or something, I went outside and it's, you know, summer night, the birds are singing, uh, very quiet. And I had a cigarette and I was looking at this land, just kind of thinking, not even, not even think like a mixture of thinking and feeling about the possibilities of this, not, not, not only of land, but also of life, just like me in my stage of life, uh, wondering about the future possibilities of having a family, of uh, having land, of figuring out like how my life is going to be settling and all that kind of stuff. And I realized this is probably something that happened exactly to my father when he was maybe a little older, older than me, except that, you know, there was less opportunity and less money and, you know, uh, things like that. And, uh, uh, my family has, let me calculate this. What again is the uh, unit of uh, measure for that you guys use to measure land? Acres or something? Acres, yeah. Uh, so, I'm using Google too. So we have like a quarter of an acre. Mm -hmm. Um and it's, you know, small thing. And uh, my family got it from the state uh, at the, on, at, on the same year as I was born. And it was this, like, I remember my childhood when I was five or something, we would go there and it's this just kind of land that there's nothing on there. There's a little, what looks like a train car that they ma managed to find somewhere and get to that piece of land. And that was considered incredible luck that they found this like tiny, crummy little thing with a roof and a tiny little stove inside. And that was like, instead of a house, we had that. And, um, but it must have been, they, I, 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 I I'm pretty sure there has to be that there has to have been that moment 
where my father is standing on that piece of land and having a cigarette and looking at it and thinking, God damn it, I found myself that train car. I'm going to figure out a, a way to drag it here. And this is, I'm going to build a life here. And, uh, and it's like that kind of feeling uh, would every once in a while re-emerge and of this of this repetition and it is somehow for me it's like bittersweet it's not i find both comfort and uh sort of i don't know concern or uh, you know something sad about it and the sad thing about it is the feeling of maybe be feeling trapped like uh, we're just in this loop i'm the same thing as my father and he was the same thing as either his father or grandfather or something. And it's just like generation after generation, we're on this loop. But at the same time, there's something, there's something good about that feeling because I feel like I'm a part of a bigger thing and I'm doing my part. I'm doing, I have an iteration to, to be responsible for. Yeah, and yeah. my father did a pretty good job. And looking around, I'm thinking, this is okay. I'm not failing. And I'm carrying this one step further. And uh, and maybe not even a step further. This is like relates to our conversation about progress and stuff. Maybe not even, maybe there's just like an eternal story that keeps happening. And... I feel like I'm playing my part of that story and uh, there's something beautiful about the repetition as well, as well as the kind of sad part about uh, the story not changing a whole lot. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I guess I, I also take comfort. Listen, I have kids and even though I didn't really want kids before I had them, I didn't not want them. I just was kind of indifferent to the idea of having children. Um, but now that I have them, I do feel like I'm a little bit more of a part of the human race. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel, and, and part of the circle of life, it evokes those kind of sentimental feelings in me. Right. But at the same time, I find myself you know, a lot of my thoughts and writing about about my own life and about life in general, I, I keep getting stuck on the notion of repetitions and cycles, and um, and I have a kind of horror of them. And so, when I think of myself as repeating certain things that my father did, or even you know, I suddenly recognize some of my gestures. Um, as being like my father's. My girlfriend who met my father before he died um, is constantly pointing out, oh my God, what you just said or what you just (laughs) did is just like something your father would have done. And sometimes she means it fondly and sometimes she means it very critically. And I'm always like, you know, I I try to argue against her, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, which is absurd. So... Yeah, I I don't, you know, it's funny. I was just talking with my students yesterday. I asked them to to write a little in-class essay, What's Your Utopia? You know, I like that this is something I've been asking my students for a while. I ask a lot of the the 
intellectual types that I interview, um, when I do Q and A's with them, my last question is always, what's your utopia? And, um, and one girl actually said, I, I want to stop being busy and always thinking I need to do something in life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I said, uh, yeah, okay, that's interesting because that supposedly is the goal of Buddhism and Hinduism that, you know, we're on the circle of uh, death and rebirth over and over again. We live our lives, but supposedly there is a way to escape the cycle and reach some kind of transcendent, timeless state, nirvana, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. And I said, I, I, you know, part of me yearns for that and doesn't want to be busy and on the, you know, on the treadmill all the time. But part of me also has a horror of achieving some kind of state of timelessness and a disconnection from life. I mean, what would it be really? And, you know, and this is, we've talked about this too. I, I mean, I feel like God's not happy being in nirvana god gets i don't know bored or anxious or something and that's where the world comes from god creates out of a it god needs to be busy to distract himself uh and i i think all these feelings sort of you know the metaphysics of it and the theology of it and also the the kind of everyday feeling of being a biological creature on this treadmill, you know, but then gradually headed toward death. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, they evoke all these mixed feelings in me. Um, I have a few very different directions in which I can take this uh, in. Let me just share an anecdote. Uh, it's very tangentially related, but it, it, I think there is an opportunity to plug this in. Uh, just Yesterday, I think the Navalny's people uh, put out a new video. That their signature thing is they make these, uh, they use a drone to fly over like Putin's friends' mansions and stuff. And they uh, show this is the luxury that these people live in while the country is in shambles. And so they uh, published one more uh, about one of Putin's residences. So he has a bunch, he has like four, and one of them is, you know, does not show up on TV, right? So in this one, he meets people. In this one, you can see him doing this. Uh, but this fourth one is not publicly present in the media. And so they flew over and they found the blueprints for the thing. And uh, the angle they're taking there is the media portrays Putin as this ascetic, ascetic, not sure how to pronounce that word, person. Ascetic. Ascetic. Like he doesn't need luxury. He doesn't need, the, he just loves Russia and nature and people and he doesn't need any of this fancy stuff. And they are showing that he has this multiple stories building um, that's a spa center, just all kinds of different spa things. And, you know, they're making fun of that. They're saying this is clearly not you know, our idea of what asceticism is. But one of the things that he has there is a flotation tank. Uh, the thing that John Lilly invented, the isolation chamber, the uh, sensory deprivation tank. <laughs> and he also has a church on, that, on the same premises. 
And that made me feel like you're not supposed, this is my, you know, my lens of looking through which I'm looking at the world, uh, which, you know, I, I want it to be a weird story. And John Lilly, who invented the tank, uh, researched the intelligence of dolphins for a while while secretly experimenting with LSD, then graduation, graduation to ketamine. And eventually the tank plus ketamine was his way of getting in touch with alien intelligences uh, coming from outer space. Uh, people like like Joe Rogan talks a lot about how he, he likes to mix the tank with edible marijuana and uh, has other kinds of you know weird hallucinatory experiences. But even you know without the substances, still you're in a dark space. You're floating on the surface of water. The temperature is the same as the temperature of your body, and it's quiet. And so what that does is, after a certain time, you're not feeling your body anymore. Your your intelligence that is not embodied. You don't feel like you have form. And I like that idea that Putin is floating in that thing in his residence and feeling like he's a consciousness that's not located anywhere in particular. Here's not this body. And that gives him the right kind of perspective to maintain the going-ons and to stay in power because then he's calm and then he looks at all of this business kind of from from afar and nothing uh, can, you know, uh, freak him out or something. Uh, and then there's also the dolphin connection. There are pictures of Putin with dolphins, you know, playing in, in the Black Sea. I have this theory that the whole Crimea situation was all about dolphins because Apparently, only U.S. and Russia has dolphins in the military. Uh, I, I saw today that Iran has some as well because Ukraine somehow like transported some of their dolphins to Iran. But uh, the dolphins, this was a Soviet program and the dolphins were in Crimea and then Crimea became a part of Ukraine. And so Ukraine for a while had that dolphin program and then Russia and next Crimea and now we have the dolphins. And so all of that, uh, you know, pieces of the mosaic that uh, if, if, if you spend a little more time on this, you could come up with like a weird sci-fi comic book or something based on uh, tangentially on real events. Well, I, I love the idea of Putin in a uh, sensory deprivation tank. Um, I, I might have told you, I, uh, when I lived in Denver in the late 1970s and sensory deprivation tanks were, there was a company that actually um, opened up all these sensory deprivation parlors around Denver. And you'd mm -hmm. pay like, I don't know, 25 or 30 bucks and you'd go and lie in one for an hour or, or as long as you liked. And uh, so I tried it because I, you know, I'd heard about them. And, um, and I, I can't remember if I smoked pot or, or had taken some mushrooms or whatever, but I was high and I, I went in this thing. And, uh, and um, at the time I was taking, you know, this is before I became a scientific American skeptic. Uh, I'm still just a hippie. And um, 
my girlfriend and I were taking a course called You and Me and ESP and uh, from like this professional charlatan psychic. I mean, the guy was too much. He, he wore these powder blue leisure suits and he talked like this. And, you know, he was like a used car salesman from Oklahoma. But he mm -hmm. was telling us that he was a psychiatrist to ghosts and all this crazy stuff. And he gave us exercises for homework. This is an adult ed class, big auditorium in a community college at night. That's where we met. And uh, one of his assignments was get in touch with your spirit other. We all have a spirit other. Some people call them um, uh, guardian angels, whatever, but it's out there. And so I got in the sensory deprivation tank and I thought, oh, okay, now this is a good time for me to get in touch with my spirit other. And I was mm -hmm. in this kind of, you know, jokey, ironic mood and I'm lying there. And it's amazing how quickly you do become disembodied. I felt like I was in infinite space, you know, like I was floating out in the universe, but, you know, but there were no stars, nothing, just infinite blackness surrounding me. And I'm getting into that and I'm thinking, okay, ready for you now, my spirit other. And then all of a sudden, I felt like the spirit, I, I felt like something was coming at me. I felt like something was approaching me from the void at an extremely high velocity. And I totally flipped out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, you know, these, these things are like giant coffins. And um, I threw open the lid of this giant coffin and jumped out. You know, of course I'm totally naked and I'm like, whoa, just like freaking out. And I was, and I, you know, and then I, I should have gotten back in and tried because as soon as I got out, I thought, oh my God, you're such a coward, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and then, uh, but I couldn't get back in. I was just too, I was too rattled. Um, and that's the only time I ever was in a uh, sensory deprivation tank. But I, what I like about the idea of Putin in one is, is like Putin having these metaphysical experiences or spiritual experiences. It, it's, it's funny to think of these very powerful political figures, you know, especially mm -hmm. ones that are kind of bullies like Putin and Donald Trump. You know, do they look into the abyss? And if so, what is their experience of the abyss? And, and how does that affect the way they think of about themselves as powerful men in the world, making other people bend to their will? It's, I am such a like hippie wimp that it's, it's, it's impossible for, to, for me to imagine what goes on in the mind of somebody like that, but I'm, I'm really intrigued by it. Putin specifically, I think, is a good character. Again, this is the reason he's a good character to project all these th things on him is he is a character. He's not, we don't know the real person. Yeah. What we have is these representations in the media, uh, the, the plays he does with words, He's clearly, like you can, you know, if you look at things he said over years, he said 
everything. It's it, there is not a position. He's not uh, he's not an ideologue. He doesn't have a coherent like here's what I'm for, here's what I'm against. He changes those things depending on the situation, and he does it with this. There is this calm about this. There is this detachment about him that makes it easy to imagine him as the person who is very comfortable with the void, as a person who is like, this is his home. He's right. a, a spatial agent of a state that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I forget if he even was in Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed because he, right before then, he was, uh, you know, he spent some years in Germany as, you know, the KGB Stasi guy there. And so, and he does all these like, you know, he plays with a tiger or he flies a, a, a pack of cranes uh, or he like finds a, an ancient vase. All of these like PR appearances that he also does with a little bit of a, like, this is what I have to do right now. This is, I'm just gonna, it's just the, this theater that he's engaged in that he probably doesn't come up with this shit himself. There's like various teams change. You know, he's been in power for 21 years. So uh, a bunch of management types, uh, PR types have joined the team and then left. And so the image of Putin changes depending on who's in charge of him. So he is almost this like Tulpa character, Not, not an actual human being, but a hologramic figure that is redone every once in a while, depending on the situation. And so like with all of these, all of this theater on the outside, both internally in Russia and then the geopolitics of him, uh, you know, saying something about either Trump or Biden, and then there's actual war happening. And in the middle of that, or the, the figure that we place in the middle of all of that dynamic to imagine that figure laying in the deprivation tank, <laughs> just like closing his eyes and, you know, dissolving into awareness itself. That's a funny and, and interesting picture to me to think that he like steps away from the business of it all and is like, this is all pay. And, um, you know, I'm going to get out of this thing in a couple of hours and then do whatever is needed to be done. I wonder if he, if he is uh, what Nietzsche would call the Superman, you know, <laughs> so somebody who lives like he's a true existentialist. He realizes that um, life is meaningless. So he, he is comfortable with the abyss. Um, and you know, he has the power of life and death over people. Uh, and so, um, you know, he, he's comfortable with that sort of moral abyss and, uh, and it's enabled him to be this kind of Superman who's transcended good and evil. And it's just living, um, I mean, like projecting like crazy, but maybe he actually is a mystic. You know, which means that he realizes that all this is meaningless. It's just a game. So have an adventure. Right. Have the best adventure that you can. And the, you know, the, the best adventure for 
for lots of men is to exert power over other people and treat the whole world like your own chessboard. And you're, you know, you're just moving the pieces around. There's some other powerful people out there who thwart you, but uh, still you can, you can go far toward doing exactly what you want to do. I just have to throw in something here. I, I was, um, this is related to the show I just saw. I just saw a PBS documentary on Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. And I can't really recommend it because it's kind of depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, this guy was a tormented person and, um, and he, and he w- wasn't really that nice a person, especially mm-hmm. in the latter part of his career, but he exemplified and helped to perpetuate and kind of sell market this certain idea of, you know, like the manly existentialist, uh, living, confronting his fears over and over again. And that, that, that way of living, like being a man, um, and, you know, killing things, he killed a Mm -hmm. lot of things, Ernest Hemingway, he killed a lot of animals and, uh, you know, he loved bullfights. And he also, I'd never known this. Yeah. He, he was a war correspondent in, in world war two, and he ended up um, breaking the rules of the Genevian uh, Convention, he was armed and like killed as many Germans as he could. Huh. And apparently he did kill quite a few. Um, and, you know, and that was great. That was, that made the war even more fun for him. Right. Although at the same time he was traumatized by it. Right. And, and then, so it's the whole idea of life as a, a competition with winners and losers and writing intellectual life also as a competition. Hemingway was incredibly uh, competitive with other writers and was when he became famous, he was very cruel to other up and coming uh, male writers. Um, and it just, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I was kind of the post Hemingway generation, sort of, uh, growing up in the 60s and we sort of disdained that that kind of masculinity, but it's, I, I, you know, watching the show, I still had to recognize that there's elements of that in me. Oh, and for it sure. Very, yeah. uh, it was very disturbing to me, um, you know, winners and losers and life as a, as a competition. I think the reason Hemingway is still so sort of compelling to us, even though he repulses us, is that for men at least, and I think for a lot of women too, that his ideas about how to live life were kind of hard to resist. Yeah, these these images of masculinity and how they change, this is an interesting topic. I recently saw a tweet, uh, a tweet thread by this uh, woman, one of the more interesting uh profiles that I follow on Twitter is this girl who I don't know a whole lot about her, but she's from a like borderline culty um, family, like a very orthodox Christian family. And um, she, I don't know when, like as a teenager, I don't know when, uh, escaped that and started to 
try to figure out what she's for herself. And that led her to a lot of psychedelic drugs and porn. And she, for a while, she's be, she was doing porn. And now she's this mixture of, I think she has like still some kind of a, not like full-blown porn, but some kind of like, uh, you know, selling videos of herself doing something erotic online, while also occupying this weird intellectual space of really, really challenging everything, like asking questions about everything and, and sort of just in a very intellectual way, like detached kind of way, um, trying to ask awkward, confusing questions. She has a, a thing, uh, a board game that I think is called Ask Hole, which is uh, it's just a deck of cards with questions that uh, I think she tested them as polls. She does polls on Twitter sometimes. And when a question is really divisive, like, uh, you know, you, you get two answer choices and it splits evenly. That's a good indication that this question may go into that kind of game. The game is designed to, like if you're with a group of friends and you all answer this question, honestly, you're going to have a complicated conversation after all, uh, after answering the, the question because the, the two positions that uh, the question proposes are very incompatible. Like you're going to think your friends uh, are, are morally reprehensible people. And then you have to hash it out. And so she posted recently, oh, and she's into this uh, polyamory thing, you know, no, no one sexual partner. And uh, she posted this thread about how her, what masculinity is to her has changed over her life. Like what attracts her in men has changed. And the specific example that she gives is, she says there was a time when if a man has exhibited any kind of feminine traits, that would be a complete turnoff. Uh, I, I wanted a man to be strong and confident and, you know, like Hemingway type. And then she got with some crowd that uh, she didn't used to hang out with, which was different. And she realized that in that crowd, the signaling that happens is sort of reversed. If a man wears a skirt or has long hair, that is a signaling of his masculinity, not femininity, because he's so confident in himself that he doesn't need to worry about how other people are going to perceive them. Mm -hmm. And and then her like actual physical sexual attraction rules changed where it used to be this would be a complete turn off. This is a wimp. I don't want to do anything with that kind of guy, suddenly that became a, a, a turn on because even though the signal itself, the, like the, the, the way it's, it's represented is the exact opposite, what is being signaled is still the same. It's I'm confident, I'm, I can do what I want, I don't care what other people think, uh, you know, you're not going to make me feel insecure and so forth. And uh, I, I was thinking, I, I forget when this was, but recently I had this thought about, so my father died, must have been 15 years ago, but a little 
a little less than that, 13 or something. And so I'm, my image of my father is, you know, it's not a person that I've met yesterday, right? It's, it's, a, it's a memory of a memory. And I was thinking about what I learned from him and what I um, internalized, what kind of value I've gotten out of the relationship. And though there definitely are a lot of things, I mean, I'm definitely uh, was shaped by him very much. And, and I attribute a lot of my good qualities to his upbringing or he, him bringing me up. Um, but the thing that... I had to work through, you know, some years after his death and kind of learn for myself and, and uh, figure out on my own is, uh, you know, it's, it's like working with a negative example. He was very much this like, he was a very kind, very sweet man, but he was this like stoic person, you know, life is difficult and I'm going to keep all of my troubles within me and I'm going to get through it and... Uh, you know, maintain this modicum of everything's fine and we're just going to have to go deal with it. And that led him to be silent about the whatever, you know, was troubling him. And for most of my life, I saw that as strength. I saw that this is what a strong person does. And then in the last, I don't know, five years or so, I have been working through that and getting on the other end of this, that this is more of a weakness than a strength because uh, a strong person can be vulnerable. A strong person can share the difficult things they're going through and not hide them within, uh, within themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that we're... No, one way or another, we have to deal with the legacy of our fathers and even with, I, you know, I, I think men my age are still dealing with the legacy of, uh, of Ernest Hemingway. I, I can remember, so Hemingway obviously influenced a lot of other writers. And uh, one um, is Norman Mailer. Norman Mailer uh, fought in World War II. Norman Miller, um, he was like, uh, he just died, I don't know, not that long ago, but he was a very prominent novelist um, who also fought in World War II as a very young man and then um, embraced the Hemingway values of life as a competition and and love and sex as a battle Mm -hmm. between men and women. And uh, Mailer wrote a novel called An American Dream. And, um, and it was like uh, kind of an acid trip version of, of an Ernest Hemingway book where the, the narrator is this kind of John F. Kennedy type figure, you know, this charismatic guy. And he's got a, uh, he's got a beautiful, um, sexy, but uh, bitchy wife. And they have a big fight after a party when he's drunk and he throws her out the window of their high rise apartment. So he kills her and then he goes and anally rapes the maid who's down the hole. And then the 
you know, the cops come and he outwits the cops. And then he, in the course of the novel, he also, um, he like beats up a big tough black guy and he steals the girlfriend from an Italian mobster. So, so the, the novel is like this crazy parody of male fantasy and mm-hmm. the, the Hemingway-esque mode. Like, what, what do you most fear and what do you most desire? Okay, now you're going you're gonna to do that. You're going to conquer your fears and just take what you desire, even if other men want it, if other men possess it. And it was just, I, you know, I read this back in the 70s and I remember just thinking, this is so nuts. It's like, who would actually want to live like this? And um, it's just so absurd. And it wasn't clear from the way Hemingway, Hemingway actually did stab one of his wives. I mean, uh, Norman Mailer actually stabbed one of his mm-hmm. wives in a, in a drunken, um, in a, when they were having a drunken fight and he, and he boxed and, you know, had this kind of belligerent attitude toward uh, life, saw it very much of his, saw it very much as a contest and he was just ridiculous and he was a brilliant writer a brilliant thinker but he was this ridiculous cartoon version of a man and um and our i I, you know i i sort of saw mailer's work as an inadvertent repudiation of of uh hemingway but as i said these values are you know, you can sort of rationally distance yourself from them. That's what I've tried to do. But then you you feel them inside you. They're very deep-rooted. Um, I mean, Hemingway, he blew his brains out when he was <clears throat> only <clears throat> 61 years old because he, he couldn't play the game anymore. I mean, he was clinically depressed. He was a mess. Didn't uh, he also have, like, he, he used to... Wear women underwear behind yeah. closed doors. He was kinky. He he. Um, well, it turned out so there was a lot of kind of cheap psychoanalysis in this uh, documentary. Apparently, his mother. He had a a sister who I think was very close in age to him. Not I don't think she was a twin, but very close in age. And the mother used to dress them up both mm. as little as twins as if mm. they were same-sex twins. So sometimes they would both be dressed as little boys. Sometimes they would both be dressed as little girls. And apparently Hemingway had this thing for like gender switching in sex that especially came out with his last wife who was apparently uh, apparently into that. So that sort of complicates the uh, the image that we have of him. Although you could also see it as an expression of his confidence in his masculinity, right? I suppose so. But there does seem to be a like the I guess the the one of the guiding principles that I'm using with my life is you want to integrate all of the different parts of yourself. You don't want there to be contradictions between what you feel and what you say, what you feel and what you do, what, how you are behind closed doors and how you are in the open, how you deal with strangers, how you deal with people who... Девушка, что такое? My dog has been sick and... Uh, oh. 
he he's he's having like he has a problem with his prostate and his bladder and his kidneys and just an overall fucked up little creature. Oh, but right now he's not fit. It doesn't seem like he's um what did it yeah, I think he's just asking where my girlfriend is because she comes home at about this time and right now she's the birthday party. Um uh, yeah, anyway, um you want to integrate all of these things. You want to be a whole human being as a poor, as opposed to a bunch of disparate, you know, vectors pulling in different directions. And there's strength in that, in in knowing that there's no contradiction between all of the different parts of your psyche and your being, and you're moving in some direction that, you know, is consistent throughout. And and having why like not not only him, but like that image of masculinity, I think is a failure to do that. It's like you're this masculine man here, uh, you know, very strong and confident and uh, dealing with everything that life throws at you. And then you blow your mind, blow your brains out because apparently you weren't dealing with it very well. You know, you, there was something that going on uh, inside that... Um, these contradictions that you couldn't resolve in the in the final instance. Yeah. With with Putin, there is also coming back to this like image of him as uh, as a Superman or as as a person who who's faced the void. Another way to think about it, and again, this is all obviously like projections. And again, though this is part of why he's interesting because he is like a blank space. He is, you know, a, a character or even a sequence of characters that, uh, you know, change uh, each other based on what seems to be, you know, like like well, whatever character is, is better to play this particular moment in order to stay in power uh, is the kind of character that he's going to play, it seems like. Uh, but there is, with all of that, you know, my feeling about him is even if you build him up as this, you know, more than just a thug, more than just a bully, and you come up with this metaphysics for him and you turn him into a, a more interesting and deep character, there's a tastelessness that comes with all of that. It's like when you look at these mentions, they're not... Like if if everything is relative and you face that and you've realized that uh, you know there's no good and evil and you're uh, able to decide what your values are for yourself and build your life based on that, etc. You need some kind of artistic vision or integrity to create that reality in a way that would be worthwhile, interesting, or compelling. And his, like what he builds, these mansions or, you know, his his lifestyle does not strike me as, uh, you know, well, here's a person who's transcended all of that and now he's able to do something, you know, outside of the confines of the culture. No, he's, he's playing out these stereotypes of a rich guy, of a, of a powerful guy, of a guy who's everybody bends his, their knee in front of him. And that... One way to look at that is 
to see him as an expression of this tragedy, really, of the Soviet people that was uh, expressed to me most uh, uh, in, in the most stark fashion that, that, that like, stuck with me. There was this TV show in the, I guess, mid-90s that uh, like I used to watch political shows with my mother and father. As a, this is like good family evening time. Uh, they're watching something that they actually care about, uh, and I'm using that as a way to just chill with my parents as a little kid. And I don't remember that show myself, but my mother um, referenced it a number of times where, well, I guess there are two different shows, two different things that different people said. One was, I forget the name of this woman, she was in, the, in Gorbachev's government, uh, I forget what exactly, what position she occupied. But she said that one of the tragedies of the Soviet period, personal kind of tragedies for her, is she said, I'm by now, let's say, like 50 or 60 years or whatever, and I have no idea what my taste is. I don't know what I like because I was never able to find that out because there were no options. I just had the same kind of furniture that everybody else had lived in the same kind of apartment that everybody else lived. And so now I'm at the latter stage of my life and I still don't know what I like. And, and then the other thing was, so this was like mid-90s, and a teacher uh, was complaining about the you know, economic hardships and the uh, how much work she has and how little opportunity she has because of money. And she said, I'm a teacher. I have, you know, th these kids uh, come to me to be, like I'm supposed to be an example for them. I'm supposed to enrich their lives. And it really is a part of me, it should be a part of my job to have a rich life outside of that job. I should go to theater place. I should, you know, uh, get more, you know, culturally educated myself so that when I go into the classroom, these kids see a human being that's continuing to develop and who has interests and whatnot. And I don't have an opportunity to have these interests or pursue them. And so that's another way to see Putin as this, you know, he, he used to, in the KGB before, you know, all of this stuff happened to him, he apparently had a nickname, Moth, because he was this nobody. He was this gray character who, you know, no, no distinct characteristics about him, just the guy in the background. And maybe that's one way to get ahead in life is to have you know, not a whole lot of personality and just do what the situation calls for and quietly plan your way to the top. But then once you get to the top, what are you going to do with that since you haven't developed a personality? You're going to play out these cliches of a person on the top. And and so th that's that's another way to kind of paint that drama of you know, maybe he's figured out many of these things about the social dynamics and how you play the game. But then you win the game in a local setting. 
And what do you do with your position, your ability to have everything uh, in the world? You don't have taste. You don't have interests that are deep. And so you're just, again, playing out these stereotypes. It does seem like a lot of the, um, you know, really powerful men um, have sort of adolescent mm-hmm. tape. And um, although I'm sure, you know, if you went through history, you could find some uh, who, well, maybe they surround themselves with people who have taste or they're, they're you know, that that's their job is to, um, is to uh, decorate De- decorate the dictatorship. Um, you know, so Hitler certainly, he had taste. Right, um, he, was, he was a talented person. That swastika a, flag that, you know, he came up with that, that was a powerful image. Oh, really? He, Hitler himself designed the swastika? I think so. I think huh. at least I, I did see like a, there was an illustration in some book that this is the flag as he drew it before it became the thing. I think the swastika in a circle in the red background, I think, I think that was his idea. And then, yeah, and, you know, you, you look at uh, some of the Lenny, uh, what, what's her name? Uh, Worth Muller? Oh, Jesus, I can't remember her name. You know, the, the, the Nazi documentary filmmaker. Oh, L- Lenny Riffenstahl. Yeah, R- Lenny R- Riffenstahl. Um, you know, she had superb taste, but in the yeah. service... You know, it was taste again beyond good and evil. I mean, I've never thought that art should be. I think it, art is often um, degraded by its commitment to a certain set of moral values. On the other hand, you see art like like triumph of the will, and you know when it, which is in the service of this um, horrendous, vicious regime. And clearly, that's not the answer, right? So. Um, yeah, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I assume if you went back, you found some, let's say, great Japanese warlords or something right, right. Uh, who were absolutely ruthless in the way that they wielded power, but they probably had superb Zen-inspired taste, right? <laughs> in a sense, like, I don't know, who cares? Uh you know what the taste is if you're, if you're, the life that you're living um, has absolutely no moral substance to it at all. Uh, you know, the, so you you make you make your your palace pretty, and yeah. meanwhile, you know, you're slaughtering you're slaughtering the the population out there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, in a way, we're sort of talking about what if you if you have a truly existential, and by existential, I mean you sort of face the meaninglessness of existence squarely, and you've really internalized it, and you have developed a fearlessness. You know, you're going to die. That's okay, and you're going to make the most out of life, um, and try to cultivate this. Uh, this fearless attitude, and um, what should your aesthetics be uh, if you're that kind of person? Do aesthetics even matter? Um, and is there any connection between the aesthetics and the morals? Yeah, 
I mean, maybe at that point, it's really the the aesthetics is just so incidental to the raw manipulation of other people um, that it ends up being like sometimes it's it it looks tasteful, and other times it's it's like Saddam Hussein's version of interior decorating, right? Um, I had this. Uh... So a, a few shows ago, we talked about this idea, this premise of mine uh, of ideas as living entities that you can form relationships with. And uh, for a few weeks, I was uh, really focusing on that idea and thinking about it and seeing it as a seed of something that could even be a true description of reality of what is happening. Uh, the latest DMT trip made me... Uh, forget about all of that because the, the, the experience made me, I was like thinking about it in the background uh, before and then in between the two little trips, I thought about this idea again and thought, okay, well, this is clearly not even close to a description of what actually is happening. But in the same instance, I thought that does not mean you should abandon the idea because uh, what actually is happening, you're probably not going to be able to describe anyway. You don't even understand it. Uh, and and the idea can still have value and worth, even if it's, you know, a, a metaphor at the best. Uh, what what should be the measure of that idea is whether it's useful, whether it, you know, uh, allows you to do something good more effectively or not. But at this earlier stage, when I was uh, trying to think it through and um, maybe figure out some of its consequences, I. Uh, wrote this draft of uh, uh, you know uh, trying to to think the idea through more fully, and I thought a good exercise would be to so one of the things that I do generally when I work with ideas, if I have some idea that I haven't yet articulated, and I you know I drew something maybe based on it, but it's not getting there, it's not the, you know, it can't finalize, it can't bring it to some kind of a completion so that I can share it with others, uh, is I switch the medium. I think, well, so I try to draw this. What happens if I instead write a story? If, if I find different way of expressing this idea, you know, what if I put it on a blackboard? When I put it, what if I put it on a bulletin board? What if I you know, uh, what, what would this idea be like if it was expressed as sculpture or painting or, you know, whatever it is, or if I talk to this person or to that person. And so that, that allows you to understand the idea more fully. You see it like another um, projection of, of the object that you're trying to see on a different plane. And so with that idea of ideas as living entities, I thought I'm going to do this exercise of imagining what it would be like if there was a religion based on that premise. And the, the reason I thought of uh, a religion, because religion is, it has all of these different elements, right? There is, if you think about Christianity, there is like an architectural style that goes with it. There is a social structure. There is a way of speaking. There is... Uh, all of these different dimensions of this multidimensional process going on. And so if you think about some kind of an idea and imagine what 
a religion basement would look like, you'll learn more about the idea. Uh, and so I started like writing these things out. So here's how the symbol of the religion might look like. Here's how a sacred place might look like. It would be some kind of a portal for these ideas, some kind of a thing that, uh, you know, plays with multiple tools of creative work so that you can channel the ideas through, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I got to the morality of that imagined religion. Like what would be its values? How would it determine what's good and what's bad? And at first I thought there is no, um, there's no correlation there. Like that premise, maybe ideas are alive uh, and there are these invisible entities that you can engage with. It's morally ambiguous. There is no uh, compass to navigate the good and evil part of life. But then I started writing out like what kind of guidance could that framework give you and the guidance I thought would be like how to engage with ideas. It's like closer to uh, creative techniques, right? So if how do you have more ideas and how do you have better ideas and how do you not engage with ideas that would be harmful to you or to others? And writing that out through this kind of communication framework uh, like how do you have a good relationship with an idea and how do you find the ideas that would be good to you uh, led me to a kind of morality based on this premise. So you, I wrote out these like principles uh, for engaging with ideas. And then like the next step is to think these same rules, you know, extrapolate them and, and turn them into these foundational principles of engagement in the world generally. And the way you get to good ideas and the, the way you establish good healthy relationships with these ideas for just the purpose of, you know, having better art without sacrificing yourself uh, leads you to a, a set of principles for engagement with people it's, it's the same kind of relationship. You don't want to abuse the idea. You don't want the idea to abuse you. You uh, want to be, you want to pay attention to the idea if you are to uh, express it better. Uh, you want to be curious. You want, don't want to be judgmental, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all based on this practical aspect of how do you empower yourself as a creative person that can be translated to the way you engage with people and the world and it can become this basis for a morality. Wow, that's really interesting. I, you know, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm just thinking of that you can connect, you could come up with sort of a value system based on, on the realm of ideas uh, that would, I mean, one of the, one of the axioms would be that ideas are good if they generate other ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so the, you know, the, you could think of that as being, uh, fertility or something. Mm -hmm. Um, the more I, and the more ideas, um, the better where, and some ideas shut down other ideas. 
it's kind right. of a paradox of science that, um, you know, the ultimate scientists are, are always seeking some kind of ultimate truth that answers the questions of that field and that kind of closes that field off um, in some sense to further invest investigations and to new ideas. If you know, your idea is fantastic. You've got a, uh, you know, like a, a perfect explanation of photosynthesis and you know, that sort of uh, closes down further, further ideas about that, about that uh, puzzle. But uh, where, at, and, and so, you know, the whole idea of scientific truth, you know, truth with capital T uh, that serves as a kind of final theory for any field, that's not a good idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because it's sort of a dead end. Right. And then, you know, right. then the conversation has to be over and... Yeah, a certain kind to. of conversation. You could say, well, then, you know, a lot of scientists would say, well, that, but once we have an understanding of how nature works, that's like learning the, the rules of chess. And then, you know, we become grandmasters. We can manipulate nature. And that's what we're already starting to do. I get that. But it seems to me that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more, I, I feel like this is a way of expressing um, what's sometimes called pluralism. Mm -hmm. and the idea of pluralism is just that it's good to have lots of theories, a, a diversity of theories, the more the better. And we should resist the idea that there is a correct way of understanding some feature of nature and especially understanding like really big things like nature as a whole or human nature. Uh, anyway, I'm just trying to say, you know, yeah, that's far out. I really like that. I, I like the idea of sort of thinking about ideas as like a separate realm, as sort of disconnected from us, but then trying to understand how, if you develop a set of values for that realm, what that implies for how we live our lives and how we relate. It doesn't to have to be, doesn't have to be disconnected. The way that I've been thinking about it is like it's a, I don't know, hidden mirror world, like what is happening, you know, like the old alchemical thing, the as above, so below, like what's happening here in our world is what is also happening in that realm of ideas, uh, you know, and, and the two realities reflect one another. Uh, and what you said just now about ideas, like a good idea is one that gives uh, birth to more ideas or empowers other ideas or, um, you know, doesn't shut down other ideas. That's also, a, you know, a, a reasonable way to look at your way of uh, navigating the social reality. A good, you're a good node in a network of human relationships if all of the people that are connected to you get stronger and healthier and happier uh, and, and you don't shut them down. Also, you know, applies for a conversation. If if you're talking to a person, like sometimes you, you know, start talking to somebody and you start on an idea and they just go, oh, that's bullshit. And there's not even a, that's bullshit because, and then let's argue. It's just like, well, that branch of the conversation is now sewn off 
and I don't have anything to propose in its place. And so let's just be in awkward silence now. The thing is, I, I, I do think, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a critic of other people's ideas all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and I've had conversations about being a kind of intellectual critic with other people um, who've said, uh, you know, they try to just be positive about other people's ideas. And uh, I, I remember I was having a conversation. In fact, I repeated this in my book, uh, Pay Attention. I was having a, a conversation with a colleague at, uh, at Stevens and uh, he was going on a big riff about, about the importance of open-mindedness and he concluded it uh, very triumphantly by saying, there are, not, are no bad ideas. And I looked at him and I said, <laughs> that is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And it was like one of the few times in my life where I had a like, like a, a, a witty <laughs> reply yeah. to somebody and I said it in the moment instead of thinking of it, uh, thinking of it later. That, that's why I repeated it in my book. Um, and, you know, there are bad ideas. I mean, like the Nazism, sure. you know, fascism sure. is a bad idea. I think young earth creationism, I, I, even though fascism has provoked a lot of commentary and has been very stimulating uh, for the history of ideas to understand fascism and, you know, why it's wrong, why it represents this, this, horrible um, expression of human nature. Uh, so I guess in that sense, you could say that the Nazis, I mean, the Nazis are very much with us. We need them almost as this cultural embodiment of a certain kind of wrongheadedness in human history. But I still do think there are bad ideas. <laughs> no, I agree with that. I think the question is, how do you engage with ideas that you think are bad? Yeah. How do you, how do you, and, and again, this can be applied to the human interactions as well. Uh, from talking about the way people see the world, if you just think somebody's wrong or uh, has a warped view of reality, to actually engaging with a person you think is, you know, creating more evil in the world and harming people, how do you? engage in a way to diminish that harm as opposed to, you know, just saying you're evil and, and there's, there's not a lot of value in just proclaiming that something is bad and then not finding a way to resolve the tension. I have right? tried to be less critical, I, I, but, I, you know, I've had conversations with uh, certain Buddhists. I think I've even had this conversation with Bob Wright, you know, the the maestro behind uh, behind these podcasts, um, and uh, and you know Bob, I think was trying to practice right speech, this mm -hmm. Buddhist um, rule or guideline in which you just try not to speak ill of others. And I, I'm like looking at Bob and thinking, "Are you kidding me? You can't do that. I'd like to see you try." And I know I can't do it. Uh, maybe it's an ideal. I have tried to be nicer, even to people I disagree with and and don't like. As I get older, I'm not sure if that's ideological or, uh, or, or moral. It's just like the older I get, the more I 
I just, I don't like being angry. It makes me feel bad. And so I just like let things slide uh, rather than dwelling on them if they piss me off now. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of in it, like headed toward right speech, but not intentionally. Um, hey, uh, it's, it's like, right. Yeah, been my a- time to turn into a pumpkin and go get my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I was thinking, actually, I was thinking about this conversation, uh, the idea that I had that I just didn't prepare, so I didn't try. Uh, but I want to, at some point, maybe in the next conversation, to just ask you about your uh, like life trajectory. Because in these conversations, we've you know every once in a while you say, and then I went to this place and spent some time there, or like I spent five years painting houses for a living, and I never ask a follow up. Like, what was that about, and when that happened, and how all of these periods uh, you know uh, form a sequence. And uh, I'd like to have that conversation, just learn about your life a little more. Sure, I, I'll tell you about uh, the time I spent living in a tent in a mangrove swamp down in the Florida Keys, taking LSD and <laughs> running through the swamp, pushing spider webs away from my face. Yes, that's the conversation I want to have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that'd be fun. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> All right, perfect. So then uh, in two weeks, that's what's going to happen. All right, sounds good. Okay, now how should I, I, I'm not, what am I, how do I hang up again? What am I supposed to do? 